Welcome to How We Win, the official podcast of The Persistence. Action is the best antidote for anxiety, and we can all make a difference right now. Today, as reporting has come out that the DOJ slow-walked the Trump prosecution, we talk about more GOP hypocrisy. Go figure. Then joining us for our interview is Gretchen Barton, founder of Worthy Strategy Group. She's a researcher and strategist who spends most of her time going inside the minds of American voters, and she shares her unique perspective and insights with us. I'm Steve Pearson. I'm Jennifer Fernandez-Ancona. And I'm Jessica Craven. And And this this is How We Win. Hi, everyone. How are you doing? It's another welcome week. To, welcome to June 20th. <laughs> I can't. Oh, my gosh. Don't freak me out. All right. I mean, I've got my own reasons for being freaked out because uh, as a candidate, the end of June is our first disclosure. So it's all oh, yeah. all about the fundraising. So please don't tell me what the date is right now because it, it'll just make give me agita. Well, let's just say it's the day after Juneteenth. So happy yes. belated Juneteenth. Yes. Thank you. It's a wonderful day to celebrate. Yeah. Here in L.A., there were all kinds of great celebrations going on all weekend that culminated in a massive uh, celebration at Limart Park yesterday with concerts and uh, went from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. Crowds were huge and uh, a day of celebration and also reflecting upon how, whereas we've come a long way, we sure have a lot further to go and a lot more work to do. Yep. Absolutely. It's cool to see it as a federal holiday, and that is a new thing that President Biden did. So I, I love that. I know everyone's still kind of getting used to it, but it, but I did notice a lot of things closed and, you know, daycares closed and things like that. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, I was just thinking what a huge change from just a few years ago. You know, we have a president who made it a federal holiday, who had a Juneteenth concert event at the White House with like, you know, big stars came and performed, who got up there and talked about systemic racism. You know, it's astonishing. Like we sort of go, oh, okay, Juneteenth. But like we were not talking about Juneteenth four years ago. Well, I mean, obviously – some some people were, but like not at a governmental level. Well, right. let me let me tell you who was talking about Juneteenth, Juneteenth four years ago, and that was the other Craven, Mariah Craven, uh, mm-hmm. our original co-host uh, in our first season of the podcast, talked about June Juneteenth, and I had I was not familiar with it. I did not oh, know wow. what Juneteenth was and and mm. what it meant, and uh, she educated me on that and so many other things over the years. Um, but, uh, you know, to your point, Jess, now it's a national holiday, federal holiday in its second year, and um, so many people know about it. Um, and I think it's probably because of this podcast. So good for, good for us. Hooray. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah. Uh, but this is the kind of thing Biden deserves, I think, some credit for. It's a, it's a big deal. You know, it's like that's yeah. – it's important. It's a big change. Yeah, yeah. it's a big change. Cultural it's not, change. It's not sure. everything, but it's a, it's a it's a thing. So, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so. uh, news of the week. We learned this week that the DOJ has actually slow walked or slow rolled, however you want to you know call it, the Trump prosecution. Uh, some reporting from the Washington Post was uh, really enlightening, and uh, it looks like Chris Ray uh, actually. 
uh, did some things to slow down that investigation and uh, and throw a wrench in there. Uh, and I can't say that I'm surprised to hear this. And we've had great advocates uh, like Glenn Kirshner, friend of this show, uh, who has been kind of screaming from the rooftops that just in the public record on its own, there was enough to uh, to initiate charges on Trump that he didn't need to see anything in the you don't know what you don't know kind of realm. But just what was already in the public record uh, had enough bearing to bring charges. Um, but... Um, they resisted opening up a probe for more than a year, um, and uh, this is what happens when I, I guess I mean Trump really did a lot of work in all levels of our government to uh, denigrate and uh, and weaken uh, the systems that we rely on, and I, I think this is another example of that. Obviously, in this case, for his own personal benefit. Yeah, and I think this article really, uh, I mean, it really underscores that Merrick Garland also and his uh, deputy, Lisa Monaco, were, you know, they didn't do great. I mean, I, I, I'm i I'm supportive and, you know, seems like a great uh, guy, but they, re they tried so hard. I mean, ironically, with all the Republicans screaming that Biden has weaponized the Justice Department, mm -hmm. it's like the exact opposite actually was happening, is that they were just refusing to pursue it because they didn't want the Justice Department to appear political. And it, what, what it seems from what I've read push them over the edge is the January 6th investigations, which ultimately kind of forced their hands, that they finally watched all of that and saw the public interest and saw the evidence and thought, okay, well, like we kind of have to do something. But if it weren't for the January 6th hearings, we very likely would not even have Jack Smith or the investigation we have now. Such a great point about, you know, when, when folks are like, what is the importance of these hearings. Like if they don't actually have prosecutorial power on their own, you know, uh, and there's a parallel investigation going that they might be hampering with or or whatever, you know, why do it? And, and that's the clear example of why it was so important uh, to galvanize public opinion and to uh, get it out there. And in many cases, reveal some stuff uh, that the Justice Department didn't know about. So um, thank you to uh, the brave men and women who presented uh, that incredible testimony. And, and it, again, it's, it almost seems like another footnote in this insane few years that we've had, you know, I mean, but what a historic uh, moment that was watching that chilling testimony and footage uh, from the January 6th commission. Yeah, though it was a really important moment and definitely hats off to all the people who, who put that together. I, I sort of saw a little bit of behind the scenes from the folks that we've worked with, like Anat Schenker and um, Mike Podhorzer. They did a ton of work to work with Jamie Raskin and the folks who were organizing the committee hearings to make sure that the messaging was right and that they were all kind of saying the same things. And I think that really made a difference. It paid off for sure. It's, I think so, too. I was at a lot of those meetings and and was very guided in the things that I said on TikToks or wherever by yeah. by what they were saying. It was so helpful. Nice. Um, yeah, it was amazing. I feel that that was a collective effort that activists and lawmakers and everybody sort of pushed that to the surface together. And then, of course, the hearings themselves were just so compelling. Really good. Yeah. Well. well um, what else? We, we we teased out in our opening that we were going to talk about Republican hypocrisy. That could be just oh, yeah. about 
anything. So what specific (laughs) hypocrisy are we speaking of now? (laughs) Well, uh, we just got through this really intense kind of horrible fight around the potential debt default as you know and it was it was painful i mean it's i mean just the perspective of all of us like having to focus on it having to shift what we were doing to organize around it and i I certainly felt it that it it threw off what we were trying to do in a larger way because we had to you know make sure that the republicans didn't crash the economy and it's just like the stories coming out now it's like it was just totally short-lived it was like a short-lived piece in the sense that Biden made this deal with McCarthy and the Republicans, and we thought that, okay, we don't have to do this again until they've pushed it off until 2020, after the 2024 election. But, you know, it really wasn't. Um, the, the debt, the agreement around not defaulting on the debt and raising the debt ceiling was just one thing they had to do. They decided to take the entire economy hostage. But now they actually have to pass a budget. And because, of course, the debt agreement was about spending they already had approved, right? So right, this right. was this like, we still need to, everyone knows we have to pass a budget every year. And so rather than um, ag- basically adhere to the things they already agreed to as part of this negotiation, they are just once again, threatening to take the entire country hostage again. And they are threatening a, a government shutdown because of course, if they don't um, pass a budget, the government shuts down and it's not as bad as shutting down the economy, honestly, but it's still pretty bad in terms of the impact that it has on regular people, the stock market. We've certainly seen this movie before. We saw what happened with Obama where it essentially undid a lot of the economic progress that he helped put put forward, right, in the first part of his presidency. And so- yeah, it's just it's it's just classic. It's just classic. They're just not even taking their own advice. Like um, the article that we were reading was like um, they're having to sell this convoluted message. We had to shut the go- we had to shut down the government because it was important to us to break the deal that we helped spearhead just a few months ago. Right. That's that essentially sums it up. Mm. So. Right. And they're frustrating even a lot of Republicans. All the Republicans in the Senate are like, what What are you doing? Like what we made – even they – I mean when you're like, oh, there's ethical Republicans out there. Well, mm-hmm. you really know you've arrived in the upside down. But the Senate Republicans are saying, no, we made an agreement and that's what we're going to stick to. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the ma- quote-unquote mainstream Republicans in the House – Mainstream, I use with heavy, heavy quotation marks. So <laughs> yeah. heavy, they're breaking my arms. Um, they're also saying, like, what are you doing? What, what? But these 20 or so Freedom Caucus House members are just, you know, they've got one play, and it's sabotage, sabotage, sabotage. Yeah. And Kevin McCarthy can do nothing about it. Nope. Yeah, it's just like back to square one. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Okay, thanks everybody. Um. <laughs> That's all. Go drink heavily. No, but um, but I know that. But I know that we can certainly uh, make those calls, right, to to the GOP members of the House, asking them to stick to the agreement that they made with Democrats, at least as some action item we can do. Um, Absolutely. Right Especially if you've got one of those, uh, you know, House representatives who is in a who's a Republican in a district that Biden carried. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's quite a lot of those uh, around yeah. 18. 18. Yep. Yeah. But even if you have a, a Freedom Caucus member, call them and, you know, it, they, they need to hear from their constituents, even if they're, you know, tuning them out. They need to hear that they are just what they're doing is not acceptable. Yeah. 
That's right. And that's yeah. that's our role in it is to stay loud and to not do what I just did and be like, all right, well, I'm going to bed now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we can't do that. No going to bed until you have made all your phone calls. Then you can have your dessert and go to bed. But, um, yeah, it, we have to stay loud. We, we have, you know, we just talked about it with, you know, the example of the January 6th commission and how we all came together, activists, people on the ground making noise, demanding justice, demanding accountability that got us to this po- moment right now where we are, where, you know, Trump has been indicted twice on 37 counts and, you know, uh, more to come. You know, that that is not just lawmakers. That is not just the Department of Justice. That is us making our voices heard. And that's how we continue to do it. That's what we must continue to do. So. Woo. Love that. Fiery speech. It's true. (laughs) I totally agree. Um, All right. Jess, you want to talk about gas stoves? Well, I just I need to circle back to my, you know, my beloved gas stoves one more time. Yeah, I mean, and it, it really ties in with everything else we're talking about. So while the the House Republicans are 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 once again blithely sort of considering tanking our economy or parts of it uh, because they're not getting what they want, um, they have managed to sort of restart, you know, uh, procedural votes in in the House, um, and they did get a couple of their messaging bills passed. But what I thought was ironic, so we had mentioned before these two gas stove bills right. um, that the Republicans want to pass, and and in fact did pass this week, that basically would protect gas stoves from being banned by various different government agencies, none of whom are actually considering trying to ban gas stoves. Like that is nowhere in the offing, right? But they took the time and the resources to pass these bills. But ironically, at the very same time, in the New York Times this week, in fact, we had another article saying, oh, another study has come out and uh, is basically showing that not only do, you know, gas stoves in the home emit, uh, you know, all of these other toxins, but they also uh, emit benzene in incredibly high concentrations, using a single gas stove burner, can raise indoor concentrations of benzene, which is a known carcinogen that doctors say is unsafe in any level, uh, to levels that are basically equivalent to secondhand smoke. So, so, and then the article goes on to talk about all the other things. I mean, gas stoves really emit a shocking amount of nitrogen dioxide, carbon monoxide, formaldehyde, methane, even when they're turned off, right? And look, we, in my house, I have a gas stove, right? I am aware that it's bad and we haven't gotten around to replacing it and we probably won't be able to afford to for a while. Fine. But for the Republicans to take this campaign where we they are actively quelling the scientific knowledge, which is that these are not great for people, and if they can replace them, they should. They're causing 12.7% of childhood asthma cases are caused by gas stoves. We know this now. But Republicans are distracting people from all of that. And and here's my final thing, and then I'll be quiet. Because why? (laughs) Because they're taking massive, massive amounts of money from the oil and gas industry. That's right. And the, and the gas industry, the quote-unquote natural gas industry, is terrified by the attacks on gas stoves. And so if you go to Open Secrets, and you can, anyone can go to Open Secrets and just look at who is giving, who's getting the oil and gas money, it is 95% the Republican Party. There's a tiny number of Democrats who are getting it. 18 out of the top 20 recipients in Congress are Republicans. And it is an overwhelming majority of Republicans who are taking that money. And so what we think of as culture wars, oh, they're just trying to own the libs. No, it's more sinister than that. 
They are trying to distract people by telling them to not listen to science yeah. so they can keep taking lobbyist money. And it's so sinister, and I just hope that Republican voters wake up to it before it's too late. Because they're the ones getting sick, not Republicans. They probably all have induction stoves, and I kid you not. Well, probably not, but you know, but you get not, my point. Yeah, they're they're probably not cooking on their stoves no, anyway. They're not so, cooking someone else is, is, uh, is doing Absolutely. that. Absolutely, yes. The yeah. help are taking care of that. I mean, uh, hypocrisy on top of hypocrisy, and, um, and yes, is important also to point out, and uh, it behooves me to say as someone running for a state office, that there are a sizable amount of Democrats in our state uh, who also take uh, fossil fuel money as well. And, yes, in um, California, yes. Yes, in California. Um, so And probably other states too, yes, for uh, sure. I'm, I'm s certain of it. Um, so yeah. uh, that's important to know. And like in many other ways, we are not immune here in California. We like to think of ourselves as a progressive beacon. And, and I think we are, but um, there is still a lot of uh, fossil fuel interest here. And the hypocrisy runs so deep. It's all about the grift. It's all about money and power for Republicans, not about helping people. And literally, they just askew science when it does not serve them. So, I mean, look at what we just went through with the pandemic, for God's sake. So, anyway. Right. Let's talk about what we can do about it then. Um, let's uh, go into our chop wood, carry water segment. Um I think uh, someone said they're going to combine with Reasons for Hope. Was that you, Jess? Yeah, that was that was me. So, uh, yeah, you, you have to – sorry, you have to hear from me again. But I, I will say that this is my reason for hope, and it's also my chop wood carry water, So, um, which is that I did phone banking yesterday for the uh, special election in Ohio that's happening on August 8th. And uh, for those of you who don't know, the Ohio Republican legislature is trying to change the way uh, ballot measures – uh, can be passed in the state. So they're trying to raise the threshold of how many votes are necessary to pass a ballot measure from 50% plus one to 60%, which effectively will make it impossible to pass a citizen-led ballot measure. And they're doing this to stop a November ballot measure that would codify abortion rights in the state. So they snuck this election in. They're hoping nobody knows about it. The wording of the of this issue one is confusing, and it's hard to explain to people. And my my reason for gratitude is that I showed up at this phone bank for this obscure issue one special election in Ohio, and there were like 35 people there. Wow. And this is – that's a lot of people for those of you who phone bank. Like that's yeah. a really solid turnout. And, you know, those phone calls are not easy. It takes explanations. It, it takes time to explain to people what's happening. Nobody knows about the election. And I just felt a real surge of gratitude that we have worked such a – we, we've worked a, up a group of volunteers and really seasoned sort of resistance fighters who know how to get on the phones and are willing to do so for even a sort of somewhat obscure sounding election in a state they don't live in. So that's the gratitude. And then I wanted to let everyone know that I have put together a resource document, which you can find at tinyurl.com forward slash adopt Ohio, but we'll put it in the in the show notes. And I'm just uh, keeping track of all the different ways that you can volunteer to help with this election, whether it's just spreading the word or donating to the Ohio Democrats or signing up for a phone bank or Vote Forward is doing letters. There's postcarding. Mm -hmm. But we really need all hands on deck because this is not just an attack on abortion rights. It's an attack on democracy itself in Ohio. And it's the Republican legislature just trying to do an end run around the voters 
And just like in Wisconsin, I want to see us have a massive turnout and just really slap it down and show them that they can't get away with this kind of stuff anymore. So that's 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 that for me. That's great. And that's a great segue into another action item that is related to local legislatures. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, we are reaching our fundraising deadline here in California for the end of of the month. So we have a really fun event coming up on June 29th. It's a virtual fundraiser for yours truly's campaign uh, with uh, Allison Gill, Brian Tyler Cohen, and of course, Jennifer Fernandez Ancona. And I haven't even talked about, to Jess about this, but do you want to come to the virtual Zoom uh, event? I, 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 don't know, I was going to say, I was having I was having FOMO. <laughs> I was feeling rejected. Come on in, no, Jess. want. Yes. I'd love to be there. It's going to be really fun. And the whole point, and what I'm excited for Allison and, and BTC to talk about is what you just described, Jess, and these the egregious test labs for autocracy that these uh, local legislatures or red states have become. And here in California, we really do have an opportunity to push back against that and be a beacon. And you know, as California goes, there goes the rest of the country. So it's really important to do both. As, as Phone Bank for Ohio, push back against the egregious stuff that's going on and uh, support great democracy-loving, freedom-loving candidates like myself in, in <laughs> legislatures that are really making impactful uh, moves when you have, you know, a federal government that is passing gas stove legislation that's really just a lot of hot air. I said it. I did it again. (laughs) So anyway, we'll put the link on there. It's going to be a really fun event with lots of great jokes like that. Um, June 29th at 5.30 p.m. uh, Pacific time. We'll have the link and uh, maybe some special guests too. I hope to see all of our listeners there. Yay. I can't wait. Uh, Well, I can go real quick with a reason for hope, which is progressive governance. As you know, we always hear about all the horrible things that are happening in red states. But this past week, Governor J.B. Pritzker signed a bill in in Illinois into law that withholds state funding for libraries that essentially ban books. And so it's the first, the nation's first uh, outlawing the practice of banning books, uh, and it's very exciting. So, I love that. It's great. It gives Overall, me hope. hasn't it just been such an incredible year for the Democratic legislatures? I mean, the the you know Minnesota, Michigan, yeah. Illinois. It's that's incredible. It's been incredible to see what they're doing. I would like to see us follow suit with that kind of legislation here in our home state of California. Why not? That should be an easy. Maybe one. that'll yeah. be your first bill, Steve. Exactly. When you're in the legislature. Ooh, I, I love like that it. idea. Sounds like a campaign promise to me, Steve. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. I can neither confirm nor deny that I will make that promise. (laughs) Um, Great. Well, thank you for that. And we have a really great, uh, very interesting interview coming up with Gretchen Barton. So I'm excited for everyone to hear that. Gretchen Barton is the founder of Worthy Strategy Group and former research director at Future Majority. She is a deep listening researcher and strategist who has designed and led research initiatives in the public and policy space across a wide range of topics from the youth vote to global nuclear weapons disarmament to immigration to what the Democrat and Republican Party brand means to Americans and more. 
She's worked on presidential to mayoral campaigns and is currently leading an initiative called What It Will Take, laying the narrative groundwork for the first female president and advising on history wars, a John Hopkins research initiative looking to unpack a way to bring Americans together around a shared future, if not a shared history. Such incredible and important work. Gretchen, thank you so much for joining us to talk about some of it. I guess we can't talk about all of that, but, you know, some of it. Well, we'll use a lot of conjunctions. No, thank you so much for having me, Steve and Jen and Jess. I'm really glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I want to. We always like to get a little origin story before we jump into the the work. So, you know, how did you first get into doing this kind of work? Yeah, well, thank you so much. You know, I always lo loved asking uh, lots of questions, uh, but quite frankly, I, I grew up uh, in a in a very conservative uh, upstate New York enclave as a conservative right wing evangelical, uh, where we actually had a lot of. Um, uh, people who had had settled there who were Holocaust survivors. And one of the things that really formed me as a person was hearing their stories growing up about surviving camps and, you know, these terrible experiences. Um, but, you know, from a very early age, I developed a, a commitment um, around finding ways to um, take care of the underdog, look out for people who were being picked on in our society. But also a deep curiosity uh, in, in wondering if, if there were ways that message, messages could be used to protect people and to care for people and to change culture so that bad things could be you know, prevented from happening. Um, and so, uh, yeah, for my life, it's just been one question after another, exploring you know, how to persuade people, how to uncover deep insights um, within people. And, uh, and I'm so grateful to do the work that I do. Awesome. Thanks so much for being here, Gretchen. I'm going to jump in because um, Gretchen and I have had the privilege of doing a lot of work together to understand the American electorate, which is obviously a really important project right mm -hmm. now. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Gretchen, if you could share a little bit more about the research methodology that you do uh, for folks who aren't familiar with it. I know we call it the finding out the why behind the what when it comes to the gettable voters and the important states that we're tracking. And I would love for you just to share a little bit more about what that research kind of is and then just a few of your favorite learnings. I, you know, I know there's so many, and so it's probably hard to narrow down, but just pick a few that, you know, that stick with you um, that you've learned over the course of the past few years with working on this with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yeah. So I do something, um, I, I do a technique that's based in um, a lot of neuroscience and psychology. Um, I do a, a hybrid form of, of metaphor elicitation um, in an online ethnographic format and then deep interviews. That sounded totally heady and totally nerdy. And I'm <laughs> sorry for that. I love it. Uh, <laughs> Basically, um, what I look for are the deeper stories that have emotional charge behind why people do what they do, why they think and feel as they do. My goal in, in life is to understand in a 360 degree way how people are thinking about things, why they think and feel as they do, and how we can connect with them where they're at and move them um, in, to their better angels. Um, 
I use a lot of metaphorical images in my work. Um, I use a lot of um, videos, asking people to bring in videos that represent the world that they're living in. Um, and I use uh, we use a lot of uh, music as well, asking people to bring in songs that represent, you know, their theme of the election or what have you. Um, I think it's it's traditional research is is awesome and it definitely has its place. But I've always found that. Um, it's hard to really adequately express how you feel uh, about an election, a moment, a politician, a policy, just your whole lot in life through a simple focus group or a simple survey, right? Um, sometimes it just, you know, comes down to like, do you like healthcare? Uh, sure, right? But like, what's that deeper story? Like, I remember that time that I was at the doctor's office and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't get the glass out of my foot and I felt like this is what's wrong with the world. And then, you know, the whole constellation of ideas, the heat behind that. That's what my work seeks to do. And I've been really lucky to do that um, with Jen and the Way to Win team, um, understanding, you know, how people think and feel about a variety of issues. Um, and, you know, Jen, we've we've surfaced so many cool insights along the time that we've worked together. Um, mm -hmm. Just a handful that come to mind immediately. Um, <clears throat> one, um, we did a project called Yellow Brick Road where we interviewed, and I remember telling my husband, by the way, like, we're going to hate each other before this election because we're just going to be in interviews all the time. But it was worth it because we had to get Trump out. But we interviewed 45 people every week, the same 45 people for four weeks, undecided voters, um, for about half an hour to an hour each to kind of understand their process and what was happening to them as it was getting closer and closer to game day. You know, what was going to make their, their, their decision between Trump or Biden or Mickey Mouse or whoever the hell? And there was a, a, a um, uh, I'll call him Steve, even though we know his name, um, but Steve does is it have, a, a does wealthy. Does it have to be Steve? I mean, okay, it can oh, be Steve. Oh, That's fine. You know, it's always a Steve. Uh, it's always a Steve. I don't know. This, this fellow, <laughs> this fellow uh, was an incredible African-American um, businessman who was not sure whether he was going to vote for Trump or Biden. And I remember the things that he talked, I mean, he talked about like, encounters with the KKK and, you know, and his ancestors, like he, he had a very uh, emotionally resonant, he had a story about uh, his experiences as a black man uh, where he lived and he had, he had a bunch of kids and he had a, a business. And I remember him saying to me, you know, look, they can call me the N word as long as my taxes are low. I remember him saying this and being like, oh my God. Wow. And he Trump. But then two weeks before the election, he saw how Biden talked about race in America and he saw how Trump talked about race in America and his son had been um, uh, pinned down um, in a mall mm. and held down at gunpoint uh, that week. And I remember he kept on talking about how his son was a nerd. His son was a nerd and like, you know, he wasn't a troublemaker. He was a nerd. He was a nerd. He's a nerd. He couldn't do that. And he realized at that moment that um, he said, you know, I've been, we've been settling for crumbs. We've been, we've been said it was okay to sit at the table, you know, but we, we couldn't afford to eat. We, um, and, and, and Biden is going to be somebody who can help us with race in America and Trump doesn't care about us at all. And, and so that was what shifted it for him, like seeing his son and seeing the, the effects of, of racism on, on his immediate family. So, so I remember that. I remember that distinctly. I also remember, you know, talking to this one woman, um, who was on a uh, disability. And she talked a lot about shootings in America 
it's funny because there have been times I'm continually in field work and I hear a lot of people tell stories about the fear that they have around guns in America. Mm-hmm. But this one woman was talking about it and she she likened just getting ahead in America as sort of a climbing, a climbing a ladder and that every time there was a shooting that um, the the rung of the ladder would fall out under her feet, like she couldn't catch her breath, she couldn't she couldn't get ahead, and um, she she wasn't able to work. And she talked about how she knew in her heart she knew that she didn't matter in America because she didn't work, she didn't work, and so she was useless. And 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 it was it was one of those moments that was so painful, but it was um, it really illuminated for for me for us at the time. Oh wow! And this goes really deep. How um, how we think about work and how we think about value, and it really um, and it led to this understanding. We did a national poll um, where we learned that sixty five percent of Americans don't feel like they matter at all um, in America. Whoa! Which wow! Is, right? Right? Um, so so that that led us down, and you know, a whole course of thinking, and 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 now as a result of that, you know, we're looking at things like, do you matter? Do you matter to, you know, do, do you feel that? Do you feel like you're in control? Um, and that's something we explore as well. Um, people do not feel like they're in control. Yeah. Um, and, and 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 so how do we then, um, you know, speak to that? Speak to that state, but then also restore those things that people have have need for. Um, so yeah, those are some things that I've I've learned along the way. But you know, I, I'm so grateful for the amazing people who have shared so many thoughts and and feelings um, with with me with us yeah. in our research. I have a question because that's such an amazing story. And I was thinking while you were talking, and I've always wondered this about people who run these focus groups: is like you have your own individual beliefs. Mm-hmm. So when when you're talking to someone, say, who is a person who really you wouldn't think would support Trump and they're sitting there saying like, well, I can't decide if I'm going to vote for Biden or Trump, even though like on the inside, you're like, why would you? <laughs> How do you keep your demeanor neutral? Like, are you able to keep your personal beliefs out of it? I'm assuming they've got to be kept out of it completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I first got into the work, I remember doing some work um, <clears throat> on a project where a lot of people were talking about folks who are transgender. And I remembered in that time, I wanted to take a shower after every interview because mm. part of the part of the methodology, part of the work is maintaining this warm, neutral demeanor. And a lot of it is mirroring. So if people say offensive words, you mirror those words back. Right. You don't say like, what the hell did you just say? You go, oh, that's interesting. You say, how so? How tell me more? Oh, right. And I felt like a traitor, like a complete jerk, because I right. knew people in my life who, you know, are transgender or whatever. You know, I knew. But I remember um, one of one of my um, friends and colleagues, Liz Mann, who has been such a, a mentor to me al- along the way. Um, I talked to her, and she was like, "Gretch, you know, part of this work, you don't don't feel bad." Part of this work is, look, you're white, <laughs> you blend in with a, a large portion of the public who have a lot of things to say that aren't always pretty. Your job is to go in, get in there, figure out what they're thinking and get out and come back with the insights so that we can connect with people. It's not to correct people or fix them. You know, don't feel the job is to figure it out. And um, I think Zoom helps a lot because um, sometimes when uh, I'm dealing with someone who's saying some really challenging things, sometimes I'll like check my face and be like, mm, 
yes, yes, that's right. Warm neutral, warm neutral, you know. But yeah, there is. Wait, there's are you a- are you warm neutraling us right now, or is that? No, <laughs> just checking. No. Just checking. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, look, you do run into people who are um, a, a little bit nuts sometimes too, right? Yeah. Like I think someone told me, um, a friend of mine, my word, it's like one in ten people are like sociopaths or psychopaths or something crazy. So. I've interviewed God, is like it that many. People. You're telling us a lot of things about Americans that are alarming right now. <laughs> no, no, there's, <laughs> there's, some, there's some wild people out there, you know. And so sometimes you're like, well, they were really squirrely, you know. But you, you, you use what you can to inform. You know, not one one interview doesn't tell you everything, but one of you, you know, informs a larger quilt of understanding, you know, and 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 you kind of all build it together. So yeah, but so, yes, the answer is yes. Yes, some people are a little bit wild. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Hats off. And I I will acknowledge that a lot of people, uh, a lot of those wild people are really struggling and struggling with mental issues that are being exploited by these bad actors and Mm -hmm. these MAGA Republicans. And they're being fed these lies that get them even, you know, more amped up. And um, and so I'm just like curious what the next step is for you. Having, get, you know, gained that knowledge, you know, uh, from those groups, where do you go next? Like, uh, and, and what do you do with it to move us forward? I, I uh, know that you just completed a study in Florida, which I want to hear more about. Sounds very compelling regarding their legislative session, identifying how Floridians felt during the passage of a spate of freedom-restricting legislation. I'm guessing my guess would be they didn't feel good about it, but um, what were your takeaways from that study? And then and then, how do we use this um, to move us forward? What's the next step with this? So this was an incredible study. We we were able to spend time with Floridians over the course of their entire legislative session to understand how they were processing, um, you know, from the far left to the far right and everyone in between, how they were processing just a flurry of aggressive, extreme legislation on everything from gender affirming care to uh, education policy to tax policy. Uh, to, you know, the ability for DeSantis to run and not resign. Uh, We learned quite a bit. And look, Florida is always going to Florida. So, (laughs) and I I love them down there. What an incredible crew of people working on that state and working with the state and, and all of that. But, you know, there's definitely some things that are culturally always true. There's a, a, a skew, a conservative skew in Florida, mm-hmm. right? They're very much, the, the freedom is absolutely a deeply resonant thing for them. Heavy-handed government intervention is absolutely something that they're not into. Um, they deeply care for their kids, of course, as as do we all. And, and, and they look for as much control for themselves as possible. What was interesting was to see this state and see the state of the people and see the actions of the legislature which really uh, imposed a lot of government intervention, a lot of government control over things that people really felt strongly that you know parents should have a say in, local government should have a say in, um, you know doctors should have a say in, but but not DeSantis. And so you know we heard people talk about you know look DeSantis talks about being number one, we're not number one. Mm-hmm. Um, we um, we feel like we're losing freedom. We, they say that we're the number one state in the nation for freedom. We're not. Um, people brought in a lot of images of, of being in handcuffs, being shackled, being trapped. 
um, something that was kind of neat. We did it both in English and in Spanish. And so we were able to hear from different voices and different, you know, media centers, how people were processing things. But, but ultimately we re really got a lot of um, insights into, you know, what Floridians really want and how someone like DeSantis is taking the state in a direction that serves him um, and, and doesn't serve the people of Florida. Um, you know, sometimes I think about how Florida has this image of like Florida man and it's kind of like, oh God. And I don't know if you've heard that joke of like, you know, if you, if you had to get rid of one state in the nation, in the United States, which one would it be and why would it be Florida? Um, <laughs> I like that joke, sorry. And I, lo I love the people of Florida. But I, we you love know, our Florida I think on listeners some level too. that- Just saying, just throwing that in there. We love, we love. <laughs> Absolutely. Love, going down there is amazing. Um, but I'll just, I'll just say this, like, I think sometimes that like idea of like, oh, Florida is crazy kind of helps someone like DeSantis, right? Where they just, people kind of like put it aside and say, you know, screw that state. They're crazy. They, you know, they run around with gators on their head or whatever the hell, you know, as opposed to saying, look, this is a state where someone is coming in with authoritarian tendencies and really hurting people. You know, um, I can't tell you, we saw a lot of videos of people crying, talking about the fear that they had with the gun, the permitless gun carry, um, that, that he had pushed through, you know, I mean, this is affecting people's lives in a real way. Um, and so, you know, we got to see, you know, how, what the government is doing is really not in step with what the people are wanting um, and even conservative people. And it, and it really was quite illuminating. So, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, that that's, that's really helpful. Kind of flip on the script. I appreciate that. Um, so Gretchen, I think we could probably talk to you all day because you're <laughs> endlessly fascinating. Um, Thank you so much. But before we wrap up, um, I wanted to ask you, well, two questions. The first one is um, if you could tell a little bit, tell us a little bit more about the what it will take, because that's totally fascinating in yeah. terms of looking at the kind of qualities people are looking for in a woman president. We could finally break the glass ceiling, something I think we all really want. So if you wouldn't mind sharing like a tiny bit about that and where that's at, that would be great. And then we always like to end our interviews with what gives you hope. So maybe maybe what gives you hope is related to this question. So I wanted to give them both to you at the same time. Oh, you're the best. You're the best. Um, yeah, thank you so much. So yeah, what it will take is a project I'm I'm really excited about. I've been studying leadership. We have been studying leadership for quite some time. We always ask in some fashion, right? What's who's your ideal leader? What are you looking for in a leader? All of that. And I had done a sort of a study to kind of understand what Americans were looking for in their national leader, in their next president, really. And in so doing, I found um, you know, six critical qualities that Americans were looking for. And, and this is something that, you know, in a quite cool way held um, over a number of studies, over a number of campaigns that I looked at, all of that. But basically people are looking for a challenger, um, someone who bends or breaks the rules, you know, kind of a coach vibe, um, has everyone bring their A game, a nurturer, someone whose mission is you, uh, a little bit of a Mr. Rogers type, you know, nurturing peacemaker, who's strong, stable, and visible, who meets the moment, you know, history kind of plucks them out of obscurity, bring, they bring their team together, um, and, and they rise to the occasion, you want an innovator, someone who's a visionary, and someone who's fundamentally American, which is problematic is crazy, but here it is. It's just all about earnest optimism, American dream embodying that. 
Um, the Rock, by the way, shows up here as fundamentally American, just <laughs> as an FYI. Uh, but anyway, as I was doing this, I realized, uh, to, much to my chagrin, women were missing uh, pretty much from half of the qualities in the initial qual. And I thought, what the hell? That's that's insane. And uh, we had some time. And we looked over 11 different studies, um, about 800 participants hand-coded all of these responses across the nation and found that, yes, indeed, women are significantly underrepresented when people are asked uh, about their uh, ideal leader. In fact, women only come up 23% of the time, and this is among Democrats and Democratic-leaning mm. independents, 23% of the time people will bring in women, 65% of the time they'll bring in images, videos of men, 12% of the time they'll bring in images of, that are non-gender specific, many of which are dogs, by the way. So you see that women are just <laughs> over dogs oh, in terms of this spontaneous, which <laughs> is a freaking why problem. Does that, yeah, why does that not surprise me? Right, right. Uh, there's a lot more to it, but what we found was that in these qualities, there are certain things that we realized women as, as candidates, as politicians can immediately lean into where they're not sort of spontaneously, you know, percept, per, perceived to be, to be, um, you know, certain things. So for example, women are, are not perceived to be innovators. So leaning into that women are not perceived to be fundamentally American leaning into that, um, but the larger project, I know it's, it's, it's insane, but the larger project is working with a lot of friends and producers in Hollywood, um, and we're working with folks right now to tell a, a larger palette of stories about women and change the way that we talk about things. Um, and we really believe that we've got an opportunity here. Um, the story that I say is, look, you know, men and love, love all men, all, but men have an established runway with a cool ass plane. With women, we've got a busted runway and we rely on a unicorn to fly over in this busted runway. And we just say, look, we'll just wait for the unicorn, right? But for me, and I bet for you too, you're tired of waiting for the unicorn. I want to do something and I think we all can do something. So the work really is expanding out our cultural imagination of what a woman is, changing perceptions about women, women in leadership, um, ultimately to, to repair that runway and give women a real shot to run for and win the presidency. So this is my hope. <laughs> uh, my hope is that we, <laughs> that we can change these stories um, and that we can expand uh, for for multiple audiences across America, the perception of women, so that people bring in more images of women than they do of dogs when they think of ideal leaders. They bring in at least half of the time they bring in images of women, and they start to associate and realize that we have incredible women leading in the country right now and across the world. I think that we leave so much talent on the table when we don't consider um, our full population uh, for leadership. And, and I, I sincerely hope and, and believe that we can make a difference. So, yeah. Wow. That's what we're working on. <laughs> That's really inspiring and such, uh, you know, yeah, tremendously important work. So I'm very grateful that you're doing it and grateful for your expertise. And uh, Gretchen, thank you so much for sharing that with us on How We Win. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was so cool. Thank 
you so much for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Send us an email at hello at howwewinpod.com or find us on social at howwewinpod, at bluesboysteve, at Jen Ancona, and at jesscraven101 everywhere but Twitter. And make sure you subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts and share our show with your friends and family. There's always more work to do, so we'll be back with more next Wednesday.